Good to be with y'all this this morning. Obviously, I am uh, not Phil Pike, so for those of you that are joining us online, uh, Phil is taking a a Sunday off. Uh, David had mentioned a couple of months ago that we as elders are trying to take a little more of the teaching load um, from Phil. Uh, Phil has a tremendous job as our pastor and does a tremendous job teaching and carries a lot of our burdens and just, uh, I think that's the hardest job in the world, honestly. And for us to be able to give him an opportunity to be away occasionally, that is our pleasure. And so I just appreciate uh, your understanding of that. Um, I know that can be difficult at times, but I'm appreciative of David and Jim and others that get up here and speak. They just they do a fine job, and um, I'm just thankful we can give Phil uh, that time away. I tell you, every time I get up here, though, it is very, very humbling uh, to be up here teaching God's Word. But I've learned over the years that there's nothing that humbles you more than your family. Um, and so I want to share a little story. This was back, this is years ago, okay? So this wasn't within the last year or anything like that. So we would have this family Bible time in, in our house. And so typically after dinner, we would go sit on the sofa and we would sing a song. Uh, Lisa or I would read a, a passage of scripture or a devotion. And then we'd talk about it as a family and, and pray and, you know, it was just a good time for us to be together. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, every night we did that was not necessarily a holy night. You know, with young kids running around, sometimes you're just trying to contain everybody and keep, you know, keep everybody together. But inevitably, sometimes Lisa or I would go a little long on, the, on our talking part. And so Chelsea would get distracted. And so what would be interesting, I was sitting there listening to Lisa or whatever, and all of a sudden I'd feel this little hand come on top of my head start rubbing the top of my head. And I, I look down and Chelsea's all snuggled up next to me and she's like, Daddy, you don't have any hair on your head. <laughs> and I was like, that, that's right, sweetie. Daddy, Daddy doesn't. He's, he's getting old. That's true. And then other nights, if we got a little long, I'd feel a little finger start rubbing my chin. And I'd look down and she'd be smiling, Daddy, you got gray hair on your chin. <laughs> And so Chelsea just had this unique way of, of reminding me that I wasn't going to live forever. Um, but she did it in a loving way, and she always would kind of just give me that little snuggie after she did it, you know, that daddy-daughter thing where she just kind of gave me a snuggie. And so getting up here was is, is humbling as well. But, uh, but for the record, when I'm done today, I don't need a snuggie from anybody, all right? Just want to be, want to be clear. Robin, no snuggie, all right? You good? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's, let's dive in this morning. Um, let me go ahead and start with this. Uh, Louis Zamperini. Some of y'all may recognize that name, some may not. So Louis Zamperini, there was a, a book written by him about him called Unbroken, and then there was a movie that was eventually made of that. And so most of the, the book is around Louis and what happened to him in World War II. So he was a star athlete, competed in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, was drafted into the war, served in the Pacific Theater, plane shot down, not shot down, I guess his plane had mechanical failures and crashed into the ocean. He and two others were the only ones that survived off that plane. They floated in the ocean for 47 days, which was miraculous in itself. Two of them survived that, only to get captured by the Japanese, and then they spent two years as prisoners of war. And miraculously, Louis and others were freed, and he was able to return back to California. So the book kind of focuses more on all of that, his survival. But there's a period of Louis's life from 1945 to 1949 that I want to focus in on, is that when he came back to the United States, uh, obviously being a prisoner of war, that was a very traumatic thing for him. 
And he went through a period of time where he had nightmares. He had hatred for his captors. And it just consumed him. Um, that led to alcohol problems, led to marital problems, financial problems. And if you were to look at Louis's life at that time, it was a mess. It was a wreck. And if anybody on the outside were to look into that, they probably would say, hardly any hope for Louis Zamperini. There's just no hope for him. Well, for those of you that know uh, Billy Graham and have studied him and, and are very familiar with him, Billy Graham's first crusade was in, I think one of his first crusades was in Southern California in 1949. Long story short, Louis Zamperini ends up at one of those crusades, and God gets a hold of him, and he turns his life over to Jesus. And when many thought that there was no hope for Louis, God jumped in and saved him. Louis goes home, he dumps his alcohol, he dumps all the other things, that, the idols in his life that were in his house, and the book says for the first time in five years he slept in peace. Amen, yeah, praise the Lord. And so Louis came to realize a couple of things. That God was his only hope, that God was loving and gracious toward him, and that when Louis turned to God, God became everything to him. And today, we're going to look at a passage that's going to drive those four points home for us. And I hope that God uses this to just encourage us, maybe challenge us a little bit. But at the end, I pray we walk out of here giving glory to the one that deserves it the most, Jesus. So would you go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Joel with me? I figured I was safe uh, teaching from Joel. I figured we'd had another two years or so before Phil would get there uh, in our in our Bible Through the Decade series that we're working on. Um, Phil, if you're watching, I'm sorry, buddy, but I had to throw that in, all right? Just, uh, I do love you. I really do. But go ahead and turn to the book of Joel. For those of you that still use the, the nice uh, Bibles, that's right after, that's in the Minor Prophets. It's the second Minor Prophet. If you can find uh, Hosea, you're going to find it right after that. Joel's just a little three-chapter book. And for those of you that use your iPads, you just type in Joel, and there you'll have it. So... Um, so we're going to be spending some time in the, in the book of Joel. So just briefly, the book of Joel was written to the southern kingdom, which was Judah at the time. So Phil kind of alluded that last week, that the kingdoms had split. So this writing was to the southern kingdom of the people of Judah. And it's, when you study this, it's dated. Scholars don't really know when this actually was written. They, I saw from one end, 845 B.C., all the way down to 450 B.C., but at the end of the day, most, I feel like most kind of fall in that area that it was written sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So depending on where you put this book dictates how some people interpret it, but that's not for, for us to worry about here this morning. But the main thing that i just give you a background before we dive into the Scripture is Joel, since it was written to the people of Judah, it's warning of the devastation and destruction that is coming to them. And it starts out in chapter 1, and it's talking about this plague of locusts that has already come into play and the devastation that these locusts had brought to the produce there. And so I don't know if y'all have ever gone online and you know, did a search on what a locust infestation looks like. They have them in Africa and over in southern Russian places. I mean, it just wipes out the green. They'll do an aerial view, and you'll see all the green, and then they'll do an aerial view afterwards, and it's just brown. I mean, it's just devastating. And for the people at that time to have one of those plays come through is a, I mean, they lose almost everything. And so he's warning them that this is God's judgment on them. This has happened. And then he goes in chapter 2 and he says, here 
is God's judgment that's coming to you because of your continual sin. Now, chapter 2 refers to a, the Lord's army. And for Bible scholars here that love to dig into the details of that, some people say that was an actual physical army. Some say that's another locust army that's going to come in and wipe them out. doesn't really matter for our purposes today. The bottom line is there was a coming judgment coming on the people of Judah because they had not followed God. It was coming, and there was nothing they could do. Here comes God's judgment upon them. And so that's where we're going to pick up. So if you go to Joel 2, let's start in verse 10. And I'm going to have some of the scriptures up on the screen for us as well. But let me pick up in verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to focus on 12 through 14. Verse 10. This is this army that Joel's predicting is coming in. It's going to wreak havoc. The earthquakes before them. The sky shakes. The sun and moon grow dark and their stars cease their shining. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. This is God using this army to come forth. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Pretty powerful words there. And then right in the middle of this book, we get this message of hope. And God says right there in verse 12, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Even now, we're going to come back to those words. Those are powerful words. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. A message of hope there. And I want to focus on four things that I've already mentioned as we, we work through this passage here, in verse, starting in verse 12. And the first thing is, with God... And this is key. We're going to spend a little time here on this one. With God, there is always hope. With God, there is always hope. Verse 12, even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all your heart. You see, God's hand of judgment was upon them. Things were about to get really bad. They were already bad. They're going to get worse. The people of Judah are guilty. They deserve this punishment. There's nothing they can do on their own to change it. They're like, you know, they're, they're just like the, the guilty person standing before the judge, just at the mercy of the judge, waiting on the judge to give the sentence. That's what they're like. And then here is God, the only true judge, stepping in and saying, even now, all this stuff you've done, the fact that judgment is getting ready to come upon you, even now, you can still turn to me. Even now. And this is our God providing hope when all hope seems gone. This is our God stepping in, providing hope when all hope seems gone. And what, when you take a step back and think about what, what does that mean for us? This is the same God that we serve today. And it reminds me just of a couple of things, and no apparent order, but the first thing is it just reminds me there's always hope for me, and there's always hope for you. There's hope for us. There's that, um, that hymn, 
uh, I think, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That one that kind of has that tune. There's a verse laid in there. It says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That, that is all of us. We make messes of stuff. You know, we talked the other week about how we come into church and everybody say, how we doing? Fine, we're doing fine. You know, I'm going to put a face, big old smile on face. But man, we got stuff. We got messes. And I tell you what, when you, it, it's just a slippery slope. And we all could give testimony to this. It's just like we, we take our eyes off God for whatever reason. We start focusing on ourselves. We make a couple of selfish decisions. And then the next thing you know, the extent of our depravity is only stopped by the gracious God we serve. We just get in these cycles sometimes. And, you know, I look back on my life, and there was this period of time from, I guess, I don't know, sometime towards my later latter part of my senior year of high school to maybe my first early second year of college, where I look back on that, I made selfish decisions because I wanted to be cool. Um, I know, Linda, there's not a cool bone in my body, but I thought I could be. Li- hey, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I thought I could be. And so I made some selfish decisions, and I look back on that period of my life. And, you know, it's, we all have these. It's like you want to take a, some scissors and just kind of cut that little piece out and just kind of put that behind you. But, you know, it's there. It's part of me. But it, when I think back on that and think how God, despite all that, still did what he did, it just reminds me that no matter who you are, no matter how far you strayed, no matter your past, even now, you can turn to God. Even now. Amen? Isn't that great? Amen. Um, so there's hope for us. And I tell you what, you know, I think about it, whether you've strayed just from, from Jesus, whether you've strayed or whether you're just coming to Christ for the first time, that is a promise for us. And we can have that hope because we live on this side of the New Testament, so we get the benefit of this, but we live on this side and we see that Jesus came and he died. He paid the penalty for our sin. He came, he loved, he died, he arose, and because of this, even now, we can turn to God. And Scripture promises us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pure, clean. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Messed up people come into a loving Savior who wipes our slate clean and makes us right with God. Um, Just beautiful, beautiful. So not only is there hope for us, there's also for the hope for the people around us. And I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I get a little, uh, I get frustrated when I don't see certain things happening on my timetable, um, and I have to always catch myself and say, God, I got to give it to you um, we have people in our life that, that we love dearly, that we've been praying for for years, that we want to see come to know Jesus. And we probably have people in our lives that we look at sometimes and we're like, man, it's going to take a huge miracle to bring them to Christ. Um, there's, a, there's an individual that I'm praying for right now where I'll be honest, I'm human just like all of y'all. I, I take steps back sometimes and I think, God, I know you can do it, but man, I just don't know how you're going to save this person. Um, But I know you can do it. Your scripture says you can. Um, And then I come back to this verse here, and it says, even now, even now, they can turn to God. And I take hope in that. 
And it, I read this book. You know, this is kind of embarrassing because this book's been out probably since the 60s. But um, so when our kids do stuff through homeschool, they'll read books. And Lisa will mention it to me. And I'm like, wow, I've never read that book. Let me go read it. So I, I read The Cross and the Switchblade the past couple of weeks by uh, Dave Wilkerson. Um, where he talks about how Nikki Cruz came to know Jesus. There was a whole movie done on this that many of y'all have seen. This is the first time I'd read it. I'd heard all this stuff, but I didn't know how it went down. But how he met Nikki on the street corners, and in their relationship, Nikki threatened to, to kill him. And then, long story short, Nikki ends up at this youth meeting with Dave Wilson's up there speaking. And as Dave's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about being clean and starting new and afresh, Nikki sits there and says, that is what I want. I want that so bad. And I mean, he had a record. He was doing some bad stuff. In fact, when he saw Dave, when he met him that day, he was on his way with his gang to, to do some damage to another gang. I mean, he was just messed up. But then God, God saved him. He ends up going, getting a Bible, reading it, goes to seminary out in California, comes back and ends up working at the youth center that Dave created. A guy that someone would have saw as a young kid and said, there's no way this guy's going to come to Jesus. And now he has his own ministry. And it just reminds me that God's still in the business of breaking down strongholds and calling people to him. So don't give up on that lost family member. Don't give up on your enemy. Don't give up on those who just seem hopeless. And don't give up on our leaders at times. We just don't understand maybe what's going on there and why they don't come to Jesus. Even now, God can rescue them. Isn't that awesome? And then the last, I'll throw this in for free. So because uh, we're all prone to wander, we're all here together. Um, there's hope for the church. I, I know for years, my whole life, and I know for centuries, you know, Satan has worked to divide the church and I tell you, it feels like at times he's been in hyperdrive this past year um, with everything going on. And I know we've all had our scratch-your-head moments where we've heard things, saw things. We may have even contributed some of the things. And, um, and in my opinion, somewhere through all of this, I just feel like we've lost the big church. It's just lost the unity that Christ has called us to. And I'm not talking about, you know, there's scriptural things that we've got to stay true to. Jesus is the only way. That's Godhead you know, sin, the basic things of the, the Scripture. We've got to defend that to the end, um, and that's what we stand for. We stand for truth. There's sin, there's redemption, there's Christ, there's eternal life. We're not going to bend on any of that stuff, anything the Bible teaches us. But there's all this other insignificant stuff that I think we have just let fil infiltrate and cause division. And I look at what Jesus said in John 17 when he said, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. May we be one so that the world may believe you sent me. And when we're not one, think about what that does, what the world sees. It's kind of like Lisa and I in our marriage. So I know y'all find this hard to believe, but we don't agree on everything, all right? So we don't. But we... Some of the stuff is just inconsequential. And, you know, we just, we just say, okay, we're just, we'll agree to disagree. We, we move forward. There's other things that are bigger, and we come to a consensus. We work hard at that. Y'all know in marriage, it's not easy. We have to work towards that to come to some consensus, and we move forward. Why do we do that? Well, we do it out of love for each other. But ultimately, we do it because we know our marriage reflects Christ to a lost world. 
How we love each other reflects Christ to a lost world. So we're going to make concessions and do things we need to do so that we don't kill that testimony. Now, we're not perfect by no means, and we make mistakes, and sometimes it may not be doing what we should, but at the end of the day, that's our heart's desire. And as the church, that should be our heart's desire too. We, we won't, we're going to have disagreements. Things aren't going to be the way we want them. But at the end of the day, we serve one God, one Lord. We're going to proclaim Jesus. We need to come together as one so that we can fulfill what Scripture tells us, tells us to do. There, even now, for the church, there is hope for us. With God, there is always hope. Psalm 71.5 says, For you are my hope, Lord God, my confidence from my youth. Isn't that cool? With God, there is always hope, which leads us to our second point. Turning to God requires all your heart. Look there in verse, uh, into verse 12. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And then in verse 13, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. We don't need to break down the word all. And what that means. We know what all means. Um, all's not some, it's not a part, it's all. When my mom, when I was little, said, Kevin, eat all those green beans on your plate, I knew what all meant. All meant all those green beans had to go in my belly at some point, or things were not going to go well for me the rest of the night. So I knew what all meant. And so God's basically saying, return to me with all your heart. And when we do that, inevitably, all's going to mean it's going to require us to get rid of some stuff. First Samuel seven says, "If you are turning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the asterisks, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve Him only." Asterisk is the actual female goddesses at that time, and it's just a general term for them. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. With all your hearts, rid yourself of foreign gods, commit yourself to the Lord. And I tell you, it's easier to say that than actually do that. I know when God comes into our lives and starts pruning us of things that need to no longer be there, that is not easy to let go of. It is very, very difficult. But God has to be Number one, and when we return to him or turn to him, we have to turn to him with all our hearts. We finished uh, another book, um, When God Writes Your Love Story by Eric and Leslie Ludy, um, which is a book that talks about allowing God to find your spouse for you and not trying to do it in your own power. Just a great book if you haven't read it. But I bring that up because Eric, who wrote the book, he was talking about when he came to know Jesus, he had to surrender. He laid out in in this book, what all he had to surrender, what God convicted him of. First, it was his pride, and then it was his love of sports. Um, I think all of us can relate to that. Sometimes we can allow sports to become an idol in our life, and he had. He had a huge love for the Denver Broncos, and God convicted him of that. And then he had to turn over his love life. He said, God, I've been trying to go find a spouse, and I've messed things up, but I'm going to give that to you and allow you in your time to bring the person to me who I need. And God faithfully did that. But what I wanted to bring up from that was, in all the stuff that he had to give up, he said, to, to discover life, I had to give it up. I discovered life, but I had to give it up. And that's that promise we have with God. Yeah, there's things, when we turn to our heart, we're going to give some stuff up, probably a lot of stuff up. 
And a lot of times when we turn, a lot of times we give it up, we try to pull it back in and we have to, you know, offer it back up to him. It's, it's a continual process. But when we do that, we discover life as Christ gives to us, life to the fullest. Is there anything in your life that you've taken back over or anything you need to give to him? Even now, even now you can turn with all your heart and give that to him. Now there's one warning here in this little passage of verse 13. It says, tear your hearts, not just your clothes. That's a reminder. It has to be an inward change. You can't fake this stuff. And I think we're all testimonies. No, you can't fake it. God has to do that work. The God who gives you that offer is the same God that has to come in and do the work. He has to change you in his timing. And he can do that. He can do that. So with God, there's always hope. He requires all our heart. And then it leads us to our third point. God's love never changes. And, and Rachel already hit on this earlier when she was reading through the Psalms, but there at the end of verse 13, it says, For he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. And interestingly enough, we read those words, and if you think about them, those words have been there since all throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel have heard these over and over and over. In fact, I think they first appear in Exodus 34, 6, when Moses says, wants to see God, and God passes in front of him. And it says, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. And then Moses actually used those same words when he's trying to get God to relent from sin and disaster on the Israelites. And he says, Lord is slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. And then David, in another section of, of Psalm, but Lord, you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. And then even Jonah, when he's complaining because God had come in, saved the Ninevites, his enemy, he complains that God is those attributes. He says, there says, he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, around these passages, it also talks about God being a God who's just, it's buried in those passages too. But the Israelite, the people of Judah here, they already know he's a God of justice. They've already experienced the plague and they see it's coming. They're about to get it again. They already see that. But here is God stepping in and saying, hey, remember who I am. Remember who I am. Yeah, you've messed up. You've done stuff. But even now, you can turn to me because of who I am. And I'll give you an illustration of how this hit home to me years ago. Lisa and I went to a weekend to, re to remember marriage conference. Uh, this was put on by Family Life, which is a division of crew. And I think it was back in like 2016, somewhere time frame. And so we went, and one of the exercises that they had us do was write a love letter to our spouse. And uh, so on Saturday morning, we had to go out, uh, and we set, had to separate up from your spouse and write this love letter. And, you know... I appreciated this by then. They kind of gave me some things to think about. I'm an accountant. I don't get real creative. And so they kind of gave us this list of things. Think about this, think about this, and then write about it. And one of the things it said was, think about what drew you to your spouse when you first met them. 
Think about what drew you to your spouse when you first met them. Write that down. So, so I'm sitting there, and I'm writing this stuff down, and I'm thinking back to how, you know, Lisa, when we first met, how she, she served people that I didn't, that she just got her way to serve people, and how she just loved to reach the lost, and I, how she would show up at my apartment with her Bible, uh, and we would sit down, and I remember one Valentine's Day, she comes in there, I had cooked this meal for her, and she comes in with her Bible, and she cracks it open, said, I want to, let's read some scriptures of just some, about love that God has showed me over the years, I just want to share with you. And I'm like, whoo, no one's ever done that with me before, but uh, this is awesome. That shows you how bad I was messing things up in my life at that time, but she shows up, Bible's open, I'm like, I need that in my life right there, that is, that was awesome. Now, she may have just been bringing her Bible and reading it because about we were about the food we were about to eat. Maybe she wanted to pray and read over some scripture before the food that I cooked went in her body. Um, I don't know. But anyway, we sat down. And, and so anyway, I just remembered all that and writing it down, just all the things that I remembered about her. And so then we had to sit down together and read it to each other. And y'all know me, I'm an emotional guy. And so I'm sitting there and I started reading it to her and I'm just bawling. <laughs> and Lisa leans over and she's like, you want me to read it for you? <laughs> And I'm like, no, I'm a man. I can do it. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I did get through it. Um, and, and we still have those letters today. But the, the point of all that is it, it made me go back to remember Lisa. And when I say remember, Lisa still had all that. It was still there. I had just let life and other things just, and we all do this, get in the way. But she still had those same qualities. And it's here, it's like God's just sitting there telling them, hey, you may have changed, but I haven't changed. And because of who I am, you can return to me with all your heart. You can return to me with all your heart. I, I just love those words. He is gracious. <laughs> I went and grabbed the big Webster's 1828 dictionary that we have in our house. This is the homeschooler dictionary. So it's like this big. You know, it's one of those things if you dropped it on your foot, you're going to the ER kind of thing. And so I, I pulled it out because the definitions haven't been I don't know what the term is you say today. You got to read definitions today. They got this little political correct stuff going on. So this is, they were written more by Webster back, you know, when he used, actually used the Bible to kind of define words. Amazing thing. Um, it said, he is gracious. And he says, it's, that means disposed to forgive offenses and impart unmerited blessings. Oh, that's awesome. Compassionate, merciful. The, that dictionary said, having a heart that is tender, easily moved by the distresses, sufferings, wants, and infirmities of others. A heart that is tender, easily moved, slow to anger. We know what that is. Um, and thankful God is slow to anger. And then abounding in faithful love. Some versions say of great kindness. Some say rich and faithful love. There was a commentator. He said, when he was defining this faithful love, he said, this is God's attitude toward the guilty. When men at last repent, they find pardon awaiting them. Great is their sin and great is God's mercy. They need great help and they have it through and they have it though they deserve it not. And this is the cool part. He says, for he is greatly good to the greatly guilty. Amen. He is greatly good to the greatly guilty. Psalm 63, 3, your faithful love, Lord, is better than life. Which leads us to our, our final point. And that is that God is our everything. Verse 14 says, after he talks about all the qualities of God, says, who knows 
He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. And, you know, that is it's so true that God can relent from sin and disaster. There's passages in Scripture. You can look at Amos 7. You go to Numbers 14, passages where God was going to bring judgment, and he relented. So we know that's true. He can relent and leave a blessing. And that verse, when it talks about the grain offerings and the drink offerings, those were part of the daily offerings the Israelites would offer when the locusts came through and wiped everything out. There was nothing they could offer because the produce was gone. And so by him saying, maybe you can offer those again, implies reviving the land. And God can do that. He can restore. And he promises all through Scripture that he can do that. However, it doesn't always mean that things are going to go back to the way they once were. It doesn't mean that. We... That's why it says, who knows, in that verse. Think about what we've talked about with David. David's sin with Bathsheba, he turned back to God, got in right standing with God, but he still had to endure the consequences of that. Lost a son, his family ended up being a mess because of the sin, so things didn't go back to normal. And so what that reminds me of is this whole thing when it says, even now, you can turn to me. The key point is, it's not us getting everything back the way we once wanted. The, the point is, turning to God is simply being right with God. We don't turn to God for all the benefits. So those are great. We turn to God just to be right with Him and Him alone. To be reconciled with our Creator and find satisfaction in Him. And I tell you, that is, that hits me home because how many times when I'm praying do I get that messed up? And what am I really praying for? Especially when I think about when I'm praying for revival in my life, in the church, in our country, um, whatever. I'm, I just, so many times I think I get focused on do I really just want things to go back to normal? Do I want things to go back to the good old days, whatever the good old days are? Um, or do I want things just to go back to my comforts? I, I was listening to a podcast several weeks, probably a month or so ago, and they were, again, it's another family life thing that I listen to the podcast almost weekly. And Bob Lapine, who is the, the commentator there, um, basically was interviewing John Piper about a book that John Piper recently wrote. And, he, and Bob said something. He said, I want to bring up a quote, John, that you said years and years ago and, um, and how it impacted me. And I, I hope I get this right. So uh, just know this is the best that I can paraphrase this. But basically, John was, he was challenging those who view the gospel as just a get-out-of-hell card or just I want to have a clear conscience before God or I just want to get into heaven. And he, he was challenging that mentality. He was calling it a carnal, atheistic mentality. And he said, well, those are good things. That, that's not the primary focus. He said, I'm afraid there are people that if you went to them and said, would you like to go to heaven where there are streets of gold, where you are reunited with your family, where there is no more sorrow or night, but then say, oh, by the way, Jesus will not be there. He said, I'm afraid some may not audibly say this, but would be okay with that. No, no, no. And I know that's a hypothetical. You can never have heaven without Jesus. But the point he was trying to drive home is, you know, while getting to heaven, that, that is 
a huge benefit, not going to hell, having a clear conscience. Those are all wonderful and all results of the gospel. But the gospel to its fullest extent is Jesus becoming our everything. He has to become our everything. And that doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's a process. We're all living testimonies of that process. But that's what the fullest extent of the gospel is Jesus becoming our everything. And that just begs the question, is Christ our everything? Is God our everything? Psalm 16, 2. You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Psalm 16, 2. On that day in uh, 1949, Louis did not know what his future would hold. He just knew he needed God. And he found his one true source, and that was all that mattered. When he found God, that was all that mattered. And we'll see next week, um, when we're connected to our source, God does some amazing things through us. We're connected to him. But as we end today, there's something greater at play here when we go through the scripture. See, when we come to realize that he is our hope, and that he requires our all, and that he is faithful and loving, and that he is our everything, then our lives can't help but bring him glory. That our lives can't help but bring him glory. And isn't that the goal of all of this? The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The psalmist says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. May our lives bring glory to God. He is our hope. He deserves our all. He is faithful and loving. He is our everything. Let's pray. Father, you... Um, I just thank you for your scripture. And at the end of this, I know I sit here and I look at even what I just said, and I know so many times um, I've also shorted this myself. And just to think of all you've done on my behalf, how much you love me, and how you sent Jesus, you deserve my all. And I want you to be my everything. And I know so many times I don't go that direction and I pull things back. But I just thank you, thank you that you're gracious, you're loving, you're compassionate, you forgive. Thank you for being, for just being God. Thank you for hope. And thank you, Lord, for just, um, just for how you teach us. Lord, I just pray for everyone here. I know you, you speak to us in unique and different ways. Uh, God, however you spoke, um, would you just drill those things home in us this afternoon and in the days ahead? And I just pray, Lord, that you would just continue to, we would just give more and more to you so that you can become more and more in us, that you can become our everything. God, I love you. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. 
You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.